This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. I know people have been praying because somebody said, Lord, let winter last just a little bit longer. I put this shirt away in my closet, thought I wouldn't have to see it again until late October. Well, here we are. But that's all right. Because God's in control of it all. Amen? So if he wants it cold and wet, let it be cold and wet. If he wants it hot and dry, it'll be that too. Because here's the thing, God is sovereign. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And this sovereign God created the universe out of nothing, created the world as we see it, for a purpose. He created humanity so that we might enjoy fellowship with him and know him. And he would love us and be with us for eternity. So in light of that, as we jump back into Revelation this morning, and we'll be in chapter 11, I want to begin this morning by asking you a simple question. Now don't answer out loud because I want you to think about it. And that question is this. If someone asked you to explain the mission of Jesus Christ in one sentence, what would you say? Now think about that. If someone asked you to explain the mission of Jesus Christ in one sentence, would you be able to explain it? Would you be able to tell them why Jesus came? What would you tell them? How would you, how would you explain that? In a brief, succinct way. Well, I'll tell you, I cheated. (laughs) I went to the Lord himself and looked it up. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus himself in one sentence tells you what his mission is. Tells us what his mission is. And he said this, he said, for the Son of Man, that's a title that he often used in Luke concerning Jesus. It says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. We often get bogged down in religiosity and churchianity. We have expectations. We have beliefs. We've put Jesus in a certain box at times because we have certain expectations of Him that many times aren't biblical. The fact of the matter is, Jesus did not come to fix your marriage. Jesus didn't come to provide you a new job or to help your finances or to help raise your kids. Jesus came for one purpose, to seek and to save that which was and is lost. And this morning as we dive into Revelation chapter 11, we need to keep that mission statement in mind. Because as we look at Revelation chapter 11, we'll see God working even in the future during the time that is called the Great Tribulation. And as we enter chapter 11, we are actually embarking on the next half, the second half, the last half of that seven-year period. That three-and-a-half period where God is going to continue and then finally consummate His judgment on humanity. And as we've already seen, it's difficult, it's dramatic. Because God, because He is love, He loves intensely. But contrawise, because God is just, 
he also judges intensely. And as we look at the scripture and we see the judgment of God, it is difficult to read. It's difficult to take in. It's very dramatic, very graphic, very hard to see. But even in the midst of that judgment, just like in the Old Testament, time after time when the nation of Israel uh, uh, swayed away from God and they were wayward and they were rebelling against God and literally spitting in God's face, God constantly offered that hand of grace. Because God is relentless. Remember that God is relentless. And even in the dark times of the tribulation period, God is relentlessly chasing down people to receive Christ. Even in the midst of human rebellion, God still longs in His heart to save people. Because as you know, the Bible says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever, whoever believes in Him, should not perish but have everlasting life. And the striking theme in Scripture, whether from Genesis to all the way to the end of Revelation, over and over and over again, when humanity turns its back upon God, God is still reaching out. And that's what we're going to see this morning in the midst of still more difficult judgments. So in your Bible, in Revelation chapter 11, we're going to dive in here. And we're going to see a couple of things this morning. We're still continuing in this interim period between the 6th and the 7th trumpet judgment. Back in chapter 9, we saw horrendic, horrendous invasion, two of them, of the demonic forces that will be unleashed on the world. The Bible tells us in Paul's letters that God will one day remove His Holy Spirit from the earth. And the church will go with Him. And when God does that, it'll be like a dam being lifted and there'll be a flood. And the Bible tells us in Revelation 9, the, the bottomless pit will be opened and, and the demonic hordes will be released upon the earth to wreak havoc. And we saw two different occasions. Then in chapter 10, there's a pause and, and God offers John that revelation that you hold in your lap or look in on your device this morning. That revelation of the bitter sweetness of the situation. And we talked about last, uh, two weeks ago, we were at the park last week. Two weeks ago, we talked about the bitter sweetness of life in general. And even the bitter sweetness of Christianity culminated in the bitter sweetness of the crucifixion on Calvary. The sweetness is because Jesus went there. On your behalf and mine, the bitterness is the horrible death he suffered, the humiliation and the agony that he suffered in your place and my place. I, I don't deserve that. He was buried and rose again from the dead. And until the final curtain is drawn and Christ comes back, the bitter and the sweet will still compete and argue and fight. And as we continue in the passage this morning in chapter 11... John is still receiving instruction from the grand angel that we were introduced to last time. And as we pick it up in verse 1, it says, then, a, a, then I was given, this is John speaking, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. 
And the angel sounded, or rather, the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. During the, tri- the future time of tribulation, as you read chapters 6 and following, you'll notice that Revelation has a decidedly Old Testament quality and cadence to it. Because the focus is no longer on the church after that, but now on the Jews and the Gentiles of the world. Oh, people are still getting saved, as we'll continue to see. But one of the things we see in Scripture is that the temple will be restored again on the mountain in Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem now, the Al-Aqba Mosque is there in the Dome of the Rock. The temple is not there, but we know one day the temple will be rebuilt and reestablished. As a matter of fact, in Jerusalem, even as we speak, there is the Temple Institute. And they are doing practices, and they are doing rehearsals, and they are gathering the artifacts and the affairs and the things they need for when the temple has been restored. That is definitely a desire of the people of Israel today. And in the, in the, in the tribulation period, at one time that temple will be restored. And again, that will be the focal point of worship for the Jews and the people of God. He goes on to say, he said, listen, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Keep an eye on that phrase, those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. In the Old Testament temple and the temple in Jesus' day, they had the court of the Gentiles, the non-Jews. That's where you could go. You and I could go there, but we couldn't go any further. He says, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot, for 42 months or three and a half years. So what we see in this situation with the temple worship, and we talked about the temple several months ago in a few messages we preached. God is now evaluating what is going on in that temple at that period that's future. We see he's measuring the temple itself, the worship place. He's saying measure out the worship place. Now let me just say something. This building that we're in this morning is not the temple. You, if, a, if you're a believer, and I hope you are, you are the temple of God. You carry the Spirit of God within you. You've been sealed with the Spirit of God. Wherever you go, the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's why when the Spirit is taken out, the church goes with Him. If I buy a Coke, I get not only the Coke, but I get the can or the bottle. I could see us sitting under there in the Coke machine holding our hands out. That would be a little sloppy. Okay, You're, You and I are the bottle which contains the Holy Spirit. You and I are the temple. But one day that's going to be taken out and God's going to reestablish the temple. And he's going to measure it. Not only is he going to measure the worship place, but notice most importantly, he's measuring the worship people. He's evaluating what is going on in that place at that time. Let me give you a little bit of information this morning. God is constantly and consistency, consistently evaluating the people of God all the time. You and I as believers are being measured. You and I as believers are being evaluated. Now take heart, if you are an actual believer in Christ, you will never be evaluated and judged and cast into hell. That doesn't happen. Heaven has been secured. But one day we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And as believers, we will give an account for how we spent our lives. 
And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, our lives will be measured in, in gold, jewels, and precious stones, and wood, hay, and stubble. And both of those symbolically determine the value that we've given our lives to God. And the value we've given to God in our lives. So this is nothing new. This kind of evaluation is happening. What are we measured by? What raw? Is it what the pastor thinks of me? No. What the deacons think of me? No. God measures you and I against His revealed Word. That's what we're going to be measured by. His revealed Word. The Word that's living Christ and the Word that's written the Bible. One day we will be measured and are being measured, evaluated by that truth. How much did we know? How much didn't we know? How are we living up to what we know? What's going to happen is we're going to be paying the price, as it were. The old preacher, R.G. Lee, used to preach a sermon called Payday Someday. And one day we will be finally evaluated and judged for how we lived as believers. And this is what's going on during that time. And evidently during the time of tribulation in Jerusalem, the Jews, who by the way, even though they've rejected the Messiah as a nation, they are still considered the people of God. They are considered His chosen people. And, and while today the church is primarily made up of Gentiles, God has not forgotten His people. Again, as we see in this book, they will be the focus of attention yet again. And as they gather and worship there, you have to ask yourself, is God pleased with what's going on? And we see a couple of things about the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews became indifferent to the things of God. The Gentiles are totally just ignorant. They're done. But the Jews are indifferent. And we see Christ measuring Jerusalem. And we'll see in a little bit a description of Jerusalem at this future time. How instead of being the capital of the worship of God pointing to God, we'll see the author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit describing it in a totally complete and different way. But what we're going to see, we're going to see the Jews of that time will be indifferent to God and the Gentiles basically ignorant. And honestly, it's not much different than today. The Jewish people, God's chosen people, in Israel especially. Statistics tell us that 80% of the Jewish people in Israel, they're agnostic. What does agnostic mean? It means they say there might be a God, but we're just not sure. There are small numbers of devout Jews and believing Christians in Israel. Israel. And that's heartbreaking and sad. God loves the Jews so much. He loved the Jews so much that he allowed his living word, Jesus, to come as a Jew. And it was Jewish authors who penned the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Maybe just a handful of Gentiles were involved in that. Paul said when he went out and preached the gospel in Romans, he said, I would go to the Jew first because the gospel is the power of God to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. It always makes me crazy when I hear Christians who are anti-Semitic. How do you do that? Your Savior was a Jew. I don't know. 
So God is evaluating. He's measuring in this instance. And he's doing that today. He's measuring me. He's measuring you. And evaluating us against the standard of his scripture. Then as we continue on, we not only see temple worship and the evaluation of it, because God finds the ministry there wanting, he raises up two witnesses in this latter half of this tribulational period. Two witnesses who enjoy 140, who join rather 144,000 other witnesses in the day. We looked at that back earlier in Revelation where we saw these 144,000 Jewish men raised up to preach the gospel. And now in the heart of God's city, God raises two other witnesses up. And we're going to spend the time this morning looking at them. We're going to see four things. We're going to see their appointment. We'll see their assassination, but then gladly we'll see their resurrection and ascension. And in chapter 11, verse 3, it says, And I will give power, because what's going on in the temple God found wanting. He said, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They're going to preach for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Understand this about Revelation. There are times, and we'll see this as we get a little further, there are times when John gives us a chronological iteration of events, and then there are times when John pulls out and gives us the big picture from start to finish. And now we're getting ready to see the big picture from the last three and a half years of the tribulation, from the start of it to the finish of it, from the vantage point of these two witnesses that God has raised up to communicate his, world, his word in a world that is in complete code red denial against God. So we see the appointment of these witnesses. And says in verse 4, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before God, before the God of the earth. And it says, If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have the power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. These sound like a couple of serious guys. They're appointed by God himself, raised up by God himself, commissioned to be prophets and witnesses of God's kingdom. Now, here's something you need to realize. You and I, as believers, ha hold and have the same commission, in a sense. At least the same appointment, if not the same abilities. God told his disciples through Christ in John 3.16, as he was getting ready to ascend into heaven, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In Matthew, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Acts, he says, you shall be witnesses to me when the Holy Spirit has come to Judea, to Jerusalem, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. In a real sense, we can identify with these two tribulation witnesses because we had the very same appointment and commission. We are commissioned by the Savior. Now keep in mind that mission statement that Jesus gave. The Son of Man has what? Come to seek and to save 
that which is lost. That was his mission. That was his commission. That's why he came to the earth, why he came, took on flesh, went to Calvary, died there, was raised again. Paul tells us in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5. So if you were to ask, what is the church's mission? I'll tell you what the church's mission is. Because A, we're supposed to have the mind of Christ, and in 1 Corinthians 12, we're referred to as the body of Christ. When he ascended into heaven physically, he left his spiritual body, the temple of God, the church behind, to continue his mission. And what is that mission? To seek and to get saved those who are... Let me tell you something very clearly, church. If you misunderstand this, you're in trouble. Our mission as a church, the reason why we are here, is to glorify God by bringing people to Christ. Our focus is, on, is to be on the lost and those who are struggling who are believers in Christ. The church exists for no other reason than that. Yet we get so caught up in politics, in buildings, we get so caught up in minutia. I always like to picture it because I love to cook. Cooking is my relaxation. Cooking is my hobby. I love to get in the kitchen and just cook stuff. Sometimes it turns out pretty good, too. But I always like to think of the church in America today as two gourmet chefs arguing over how to cook a pork chop while a starving man looks on. Do you see the obscenity of that illustration? We get so caught up with the nonsense and the politics and church that we forget that outside these walls, people are dying and going to hell. And our job is to take the message and try to bring them to the saving Christ. Their appointment was by God. Their abilities are amazing. Now, who are these witnesses? Some say, well, this is Moses and Elijah coming back. Why do they say that? Because if you notice in the passage, it says one has the ability to stop rain in their ministry. And that's what Elijah did in his ministry. And the other has ability to turn water into blood, the God-given miraculous ability. And that's what Moses did in the ten plagues. Remember that? So some say, well, this is Moses and Elijah coming back, maybe. In that description, they're also called the lampstands and the olive branches. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before God. If you go to the book of Zechariah, that's a spiritual description of Zerubbabel, the governor of the returning Jews to Judea, and Joshua, the high priest. So in reality, we don't know. If we read the scriptures and are honest with it, we don't know who these witnesses are. They have characteristics of these famous Old Testament luminaries and personalities and prophets. Could they be Elijah and Moses? Sure they could be. Could they be Joshua and Zerubbabel? Sure they could be. Are they? Can we tell that for sure? No, we can't. And we really don't need to. We simply need to understand that these are two men that God has raised up with these characteristics and these qualities. And they have these amazing abilities in self-defense. 
They're able to defend themselves. It says they are able to spew fire out of their mouths. Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this way. Well, pastor, what's the symbolism behind that? Listen, unless the Bible tells you that's symbolic, I believe it's literal. How will it take play? I don't know. I'm not here to try to figure out every jot and tittle and detail. I'm here to simply read the scriptures and share with you what it says. Will they be able to spew fire out of their mouths? Yeah, well, if the Bible says they will, they will. They have tremendous abilities. They have spiritual abilities, miraculous gifts to be able to stop the rain, to be able to turn water into blood if necessary. They are olive branches and olive trees standing before God. That speaks of oftentimes the typology of the olive trees of the Jews. Lampstands and Zechariah, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they were provided fuel for their light through those olive trees. God was providing for them. The Spirit of God was empowering them. However they, they are interpreted, and I don't think anybody can be dogmatic, suffice it to say, these are two men who will be prophets and witnesses of God, and they will be powerful. They will be powerful. And God is not going to let them get harmed right away. So they were appointed unto God. And listen, when, when someone's appointed unto God, and they surrender to God, they yield to Him, and they do God's ministry for Him, God's going to look out for them until such time as their suffering or their loss somehow in some way gives him glory. There have been many missionaries who have gone out on the field in the last 2,000 years and they have suffered and struggled. We don't have time to give a litany of them, but I could do that. Every year we have Charlotte Moon, Lottie Moon Christmas offering. She went to China to take the gospel to China. Because she was so generous with her food during the, during the Boer War and the Boxer Rebellion and all that stuff going on at that time, she contracted a disease. And she was on her way back to America for a furlough when her ship stopped in the Sea of Japan and she died there on board the ship because she had sacrificed everything for the gospel to go out. We may or may not have ever heard of her unless she died in that fashion. Now we celebrate her every year, and rightly so. I can go on and on about men and women who have sacrificed their lives for the sake of Christ. And yes, God protects His people, but there are times when God has to back away for His glory, for His purposes. I don't understand it. I don't know about you, but there's a lot about God I just flat out don't understand. And I'll be honest with you too, and I'll be, I'll be transparent with you. It frustrates the daylights out of me sometimes. And I just picture myself as some petulant little two-year-old shaking my fist at God saying, Why, God? And God, like my father would have, just looks down, shakes his head and says, I love you. It'll be all right. Talking about my father this morning. My dad did something. I don't, I don't remember this, but my mother loves to tell this story too much. She said, when I was about four years old, my dad did something to make me mad. I don't know what it was. But I stormed out of the room. And I came back a few minutes later, she said, with my little self looking up at him. And I said, Daddy, one day I'm going to kill you. 
my mother looked at my dad and looked at me and she goes, oh no. My dad just burst into laughter and picked me up and hugged me. Because as a little boy, I didn't know what I was talking about. I was just mad. And sometimes we get that way with God. But God just looks down and says, I love you, it'll be all right. Hang in there. But God raises up these two witnesses. He appoints them. He empowers them. We see their abilities that they've been given. And then we see their assassination. Because yes, he protected them. He provided a means of defense. But there came a point where that was over. Look down at verse 7. It says, when they finished their testimony, or when they finish it because it's yet future, the beast, this is the first reference to the individual that be, will come on the scene that we know as the Antichrist. He's called the abomination of desolation. He's called the beast in Revelation many times. As a matter of fact, he's mentioned ten times in the book of Revelation. He is also called the lawless one in First and Second Thessalonians. Only once is he vaguely referred to as Antichrist in 1 John. That's a name that we've kind of over the years just planted on him. But the satanic influencer is going to rise up. And he will be active and involved, and we'll get into him a bit more later on. But during this time, especially these last three and a half years of this event that's yet future, he will make war on God's people. Jews and Christians that will be alive during that time. And according this is now, we're, we're projecting ahead to the end of the tribulation, the, almost the end of the seven years, and he says, when they finish their testimony, after that three and a half years, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them. Why is that? Because the devil and his demons do not like the truth being preached. They do not like the gospel being preached. And they will do everything to stop it. They do that today. They try to bring down preachers. They try to tear up families. They try to hinder children from hearing the gospel. They even try to tear up churches. Don't be, don't be fooled that the devil and his minions are active. They are. It says they will make war against them. And notice this, overcome them and kill them. God will finally lift that veil of protection and they will be assassinated. As we continue on, look at verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. What great city? Jerusalem. But listen how it's, how it's described here. Spiritually, it is called Sodom and Egypt. Now, if you sit and reflect on Sodom and Egypt in the Old Testament, you, you don't have a very good uh, picture there. Sodom was a place of horrendous immorality and judgment where the flesh ruled and defeated the people. Egypt was a picture of the world, the imperial Gentile world. So in this you have the city of Jerusalem itself during this time is overrun with, with the focus on the flesh and worldliness, so much so that God puts these appellations on the city. He said that great city which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. That's how we know it was Jerusalem. It goes on to say in verse 9, Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days. 
and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. In other words, they will disrespect the dead bodies of these prophets. Now notice a couple of things. The people from all over the, country, all over the world, nations, tongues, tribes, will be able to see them. This is why we believe this is yet future. Because this technology has not existed until just the last century. For the people of the earth to be able to witness something at the same time. And these bodies will be laying there, these dead bodies, for three and a half days. They will be disrespected by doing that. Notice in verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. Now look at this, this is so difficult. They will rejoice over them. The people of the earth, the entire earth will be able to witness this spectacle. Look at this, making merry and send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Just think of the worst Christmas you can ever imagine. The world will celebrate their death. Not, not just celebrate, but man, they'll make it into a holiday. There'll be parties, there'll be celebrations. They'll give gifts. You remember the old show, I Love Lucy? Some of y'all remember that? You like that? I like that show. Remember Fred and Ethel, the neighbors? Grouchy old man and his wife? Did you know that the actor and the actresses who played them, they hated each other? When they would fussy each other, that wasn't acting. And, and, and the story goes that when his name was, was Bill Frawley, when Bill Frawley, who played Fred Mertz, died... The actress, when she got the news, the woman who played his wife, Ethel, I think, when she, she got the news, she bought bottles of champagne and passed them out to the whole place where she was at and celebrated his death. That's how much she hated him. Isn't that sad? Isn't that heartbreaking? That's what's going to happen when these two witnesses are taken down. Even today, when a man or woman of God oftentimes is brought down because of personal moral failure or... Uh, illness or something like that, the world celebrates. The world celebrates. So this is going to be the environment of the world in that day. You think today people don't want to hear the word of God. Boy, wait till the tribulation comes. They will celebrate. They'll exchange gifts. It'll be Christmas, but on a dark side. They will be assassinated. But I want you to notice in verse 11, now after the three and a half days... God gets the last word. The bread of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. Now you're sitting there at home, and you got the satellite on. you got the news on, and you're passing around the third or fourth drink, and you're opening up the fourth or fifth president. There they are! And all of a sudden, they stand up. Rut-row, Scoob. Something's up. They stand up. And you're in there, honey, come see this. Wait a minute. Kids, go to your room. Put the presents down. They're standing up. Because understand this about everything. God always has the last victorious word. They stood up. And notice what it says about the people of the planet. And they stood and notice this. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And as they were watching, startled, it says, then they ascended up into heaven in a cloud 
and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. That is the second woe. Remember, he pronounced three woes several chapters ago. The first woe was the demonic invasions. The second woe was the judgment that would come because of the rejection of God's witnesses. I'm reminded of a story that I found as I was preparing for this message. When I think of being a witness for God, the story is about a man named Harold Vivian. Harold Vivian was an, uh, a radio engineer, electrical engineer. And in 1930, King George VI, this would be the, the late Queen Elizabeth's father, King George VI was going to give a radio announcement, a radio speech. And it was interesting because this is one of the first times that the people of the UK and the world were able to hear the voice of the actual King of England, because radio was still relatively new, especially transcontinental radio. The King had a stammering problem and a stuttering problem. He had to go through a tremendous amount of therapy to help with that. So this message was not only important to his people, but to him. And as everything was made ready and the king stood before the microphone, King George, they began to prepare and send out the signal, but all of a sudden there was a glitch. There was a glitch and they couldn't get, get it to work. They couldn't get the signal out. Something had gone wrong. So this man, Mr. Vivian, the engineer, young fellow, he began to scramble. You know, like we do when our iPhone doesn't work right? Or like the guys in the back do when the microphone starts going in and out? I see George pushing everybody out of the way. Sean's over there. They're all grabbing and doing. God bless them. Hey, we don't give these guys back here enough credit, do we? They make us sound good, and I think God bless them. You go back there tonight, today when you leave and say thank you to these men, and sometimes the ladies that are back there. But this young man, Mr. Vivian, he found the problem. There was a, there was a break in the wiring. So you know what this rascal did? According to the New York Times, he grabbed both ends of the broken wire, and he became the conduit. He allowed the current to run through him. And for 20 minutes, he sat there shaking because he was exposed to electricity and it was burning his hands and he was shaking and they said he was, very, he was twitching. And then as soon as the king was done, he let it go and fell. And his hands were burned badly and he, it was days that he had issues. He suffered so the king's message could go out. I read that story and I said, that's what a witness does. The witness became the conduit between the king and the people to get the message out. Listen, that's what these men were here for. They were the conduit. And yes, they ended up having to suffer. So what is a witness? Well, here's a definition from Stuart Briscoe, and I think it's a very succinct definition. The definition of a witness, a witness is someone who by explanation and demonstration gives audible and visible evidence of what he has seen and heard without being, look at, listen to this, without being deterred by the consequences of his action. 
That's what a witness is. It's not, it's not an accident that the word translated witnesses or witness in the Bible is the Greek word martyros, where we get our English word martyr from. We are to give our lives for the sake of Christ. We are to be like Mr. Harold Vivian. We are to be the conduit between the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the people of this earth. And the King's message must go out. And so we must grab a hold and we must be that connection. And sometimes it's inconvenient. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's painful. And as we have Memorial Day, sometimes it's deadly. But that's, not, that's what a witness does. And just like these two witnesses, this is what you and I are supposed to be. We are supposed to be the conduit between the king, and we are supposed to suffer whatever it takes, get the gospel out, whatever it takes, because Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. And as the body of Christ, with Christ as our head, we are his hands and feet and mouth. We are to be that witness. And anything else in the church is periphery. And if we're not doing that, then I submit to you, we are not the church. Jesus is relentless. God is relentless. These two witnesses prove the relentlessness of God. He is going to go and go and go. He is going to reach out, reach out, and reach out, and do whatever it takes to get people to come to know His Savior, Christ. Jesus shared the parable in Matthew chapter 18, beginning of verse 12. He says, what do you think? If a man has a... Does he not leave the ninety and nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying. And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over the sheep than over the ninety and nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is, not, is it not the will of your Father, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish? You know, he was talking about the little children that had gathered around him. In other words, he said, you go out and you inconvenience yourself. You go out of your comfort zone to seek that lost sheep. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. As a matter of fact, in this similar passage in the book of Luke, where he, that similar parable is, is, is given, Luke also cites Jesus as saying there is rejoicing in heaven when one comes to repentance. We have VBS coming up. God is giving us a phenomenal opportunity to get inconvenient, to get out of our comfort zones, and to pour our hearts and minds into the children of our community and their families. Bless God, we should be doing that. Not only that, but as we leave this place this morning, we should try to do what we can to fulfill the mission of God because we're the body of Christ. That's our mission. To seek and to save that which is lost. Because that's what God is relentless about. If you look at Scripture all the way from Genesis to Revelation, from the Garden of Eden, when humanity originally fell, you remember as soon as that happened, it says God was walking in the cool of the day, and He called to Adam, where are you? Well, He knew. But He needed Adam to know. Adam had rebelled against God. Eve had rebelled against God. But did God say, go away, I don't want you to know. He went looking for them. And he continued over the centuries to look for humanity, to reach out to humanity, to seek humanity, all the way from Eden to Calvary 2,000 years ago. 
When Jesus was nailed to the cross, not for himself, but for us, and he said his last words, it is finished. God chased us so hard that he took a cross for us. He was relentless. He was buried and rose again from the dead. And even he still continues to chase. God is still relentless. As we see in Revelation chapter 11, even in the midst of the darkest, most horrible period of future time in humanity, he still sends witnesses and offers a hand of grace. Come. As a matter of fact, the very last passage in the book of Revelation says, Come. Notice. And the Spirit in Revelation 22 and the Spirit and the Bride. Who is the Bride? Who is the Bride? Well, throughout the Old Te- the New Testament, rather, you know who the Bride is? The church. You and I. And notice, all the way at the end of Revelation, from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, notice what he says, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And him who hears says, Come. And let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take of the water of life, what? Freely. Freely. So from the Garden of Eden to Calvary, from Calvary all the way to glory, God has relentlessly pursued humanity. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're not here by accident. God is wanting you. He's pursuing you. If you've never trusted Christ, place your confidence in Him as your Savior today. If you do know Christ, then what are you doing? What are we doing? What am I doing? I'll just be transparent with you. I've had in the last uh, week or so reevaluated my ministry. Sometimes God has to slap the spit right out of my mouth sometimes to get me to pay attention and reevaluate my ministry. And I have not been relentless but I will be and I want to see West Concord become relentless to seek out the lost and to love them let's pray heads are bowed and eyes are closed as we finish this morning God is a relentless God as these two witnesses in the midst of humanity's darkest moments still prove Yes, Revelation is a difficult book. It's full of drama, graphic violence, difficulty. Often when we just see one side of God, the loving side of God, it's hard to see the just side of God. It is, it is. But it's there nonetheless. God provided it. But even in the midst of his judgment against the world, he still offers a lifeline. He still offers a lifesaver. He still reaches out his hand. Which is why these two witnesses, the 144,000 witnesses that we'll see again, Because God is relentless. He loves you that much. He loves me that much. If you've never trusted Christ, there's nothing you can do to earn his favor. You come to him owning and admitting your sin, realizing that nothing you can do could save you. No law, no religion. You can't save yourself. You cast your full faith and confidence in Christ as your savior. You fall at his nail-scarred feet and surrender your destiny to him. If you do that, God saves you. If you know Christ and you've trusted him, are you letting God use you as he pursues, relentlessly pursues the lost? 
What about at West Concord? Are we living up to that? God is evaluating us even as I speak, even as we speak. Those of you who are watching online, look at your own life like I am doing. Examine your life. Do some evaluation. I tell you, it's hard. And I want to tell you, in my own case, it's painful. But I'm going to tell you, God wants you as a believer, the bride of Christ, to join that relentless hunt for the lost to take them to gospel. If West Concord is to grow as a church, we need to not only grow by people coming from other churches, but we need to mainly grow people coming to know Christ and bringing them to our church. We serve a relentless God. Will you be a witness? Standing as we pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. Father, as I look at church and church ministry, as I look at my ministry, Father, I've been evaluated and I come up short. I have not been what I need to be. I understand that, Lord, and I'm sorry. Father, in the time of this world that I have left, I pray that I can be relentless for you. Change me, Father. I pray that you'll change me here as pastor of West Concord Baptist Church, and I pray that you'll change West Concord Baptist Church, but if not, Lord, take me somewhere else. Because, Father, my life is bound not in a church, but in you. Father, I pray for West Concord Baptist Church. You love this church. I love this church. And I pray that your spirit would fall upon this church and convict us and burden us as you are evaluating us even as we speak. Father, I pray that West Concord Baptist Church can burn for Christ. Father, if there's any impediment to that, remove it. And that includes me. Because, Father, all that matters is that we bring you and you alone glory. And that we bring people to Christ. Break our hearts. And we'll thank you. And all of God's people said, For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.